On October 19th, 2022, it was a Wednesday afternoon, I was listening to the Tesla third quarter earnings call, which was sort of odd since I didn't care that much about Tesla. What I really wanted was information about Elon Musk's potential purchase of Twitter. After about an hour, I got what I was looking for when an analyst asked this question. And just as a follow-up, um, you know, this is for Elon with your pending acquisition of Twitter and your stakes in, you know, in SpaceX and Neuralink and Tesla. How much uh, would the combined companies benefit from operating under a single superstructure, if at all? I was waiting for this because I'd been following the Twitter deal for months. It had been an on-again, off-again, will-they-or-won't-they saga between the most dysfunctional social media site and the world's richest man. There had been a contentious court case and a ton of media coverage. Also, I'd been betting on it. The general idea was that if the merger closed, I'd get $54.20 for each share of Twitter. And I had been buying at prices of $33, $36, $40, etc. By October 19th, the deal was supposed to close in less than two weeks, except there was a problem. Nobody was really sure it was going to close at all. And if it didn't close, I wasn't going to get $54.20. It would be more of a look-out-below type situation. And so I wanted to hear something from the person who, in a week and a half, was supposed to sign off on a $44 billion wire transfer. At first, Elon didn't say much. He kind of mumbled, like he was trying to decide whether to say anything substantial. So, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't see an obvious sort of uh, word, word where some word that could get combined under an umbrella, at least right now. Um, so, um, then he said this. I'm excited about the Twitter situation because I obviously I know that part incredibly well. Um, and I think it's a, it's an asset that has um, been uh, sort of languished uh, for a long time, but has an incredible potential. Um, although, obviously, um, myself and the other investors are obviously overpaying for Twitter right now. Um, the long-term potential for Twitter, in my view, is an order of magnitude greater than its current value. That comment was enough to push up the price of Twitter in after-hours trading. Then even more details emerged the next morning. This is David Faber on CNBC. First of all, we've received communication from the bankers. The closing will be on October 28th, so that's exciting, isn't it? Uh, we would like to affirm this transaction is for people who want to back Elon and believe in his vision and operational superiority. The transaction will include a substantial pivot on strategy to transform itself into a super app under the moniker X-Corp. And that bears a substantial risk. It is not valued in a conventional way, as is the case with Tesla and SpaceX. So Elon said he was excited. And CNBC had details from bankers working on the closing. I mean, that's ballgame, right? Maybe. But then the next day, this happened. Well, there's even more trouble for Elon Musk ahead. The U.S. government reportedly considering whether it should review Musk's newfound empire. That includes his ongoing deal for social media site Twitter and SpaceX's satellite network. Let's bring, uh, that's, uh, we should report, uh, is according to uh, Bloomberg. This report, weirdly, fit a not completely fringe theory that somehow, someway, Elon Musk would figure a way out of the Twitter deal. The stock got whacked on Friday morning. So over 48 hours, I got good news on the conference call, then great news on CNBC, 
Then this report, which threw the whole thing into doubt again. It turns out that when you make a bet where the central character is the world's least predictable billionaire, there will be heart-stopping headlines, plenty of frayed nerves, but zero dull moments. Although, I should say that this chaos was an inherent part of the deal, and it had been from the beginning. So a week before the supposed closing, there was another chance to figure out whether to cut bait, hold tight, or maybe even load up. You're listening to Risk of Ruin. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 28, Rocket Man. Before we get too far into this episode, which is about the Twitter merger arbitrage trade, I should just probably offer some important context about my own involvement. There are professionals that specialize in these kinds of trades. They're called merger arbs, but I am not a merger arb. I haven't even gone to the basic effort to read the Wikipedia page on merger arbitrage. Also, I'm not a professional investor. I just trade from my own account. And most of the stuff I own is boring, ETFs, and similar. So why was I following the Twitter trade at all? I mean, it sounds like a recipe to lose your ass, right? Just wander into something where you have no expertise and then start betting. Well, I did have a thesis as to the mistake that I thought the market was making, which I'll explain later, but I also felt like I could get up to speed and learn the needed information. I love stuff like this where you can find smart people, pay attention to what they're saying, aggregate opinions, ask questions, and weigh the strength of evidence. Also, the way I typically do this is through Twitter. One of the smart people I found is Chris DeMuth of Rangeley Capital. I started my career in Washington, D.C., doing D.C. risk analysis for large hedge funds and prop desks. So my job was about half investigative work and about half analytical work on all things that would be of interest to hedge funds and banks that came from D.C., legislation, litigation, regulatory affairs, antitrust. And I split my time between trying to understand, in theory, how decisions should be made, and in practice, whose airplane landed at National Airport, whose lights were on at the DOJ on a Saturday night, and trying to make sense of personnel decisions in D.C. So trying to make sense of when somebody was assigned to something, how one could reasonably interpret that in terms of if you understood their background and their perspective, what were the reasonably likely outcomes uh, from that person being assigned? And then I did that for a number of years, uh, left to manage capital, uh, and then started my own firm in 2008, uh, Rangely Capital, and we are an event-driven hedge fund. An obvious mistake that I can make in this kind of thing would be to not really understand the range of values to mistake a bad deal for a good deal, or to mistake a mediocre deal for a great deal. And so to that extent, it's very important to try to learn from people who have done this kind of thing multiple times. This is Evan Tyndall of Byream Capital. Evan is like the prototypical guest for this podcast series, because he went to MIT, then became a professional poker player, then left poker for the market. It it, it was probably, it was definitely the best risk reward 
arbitrage deal that has ever ex- that is probably that has ever existed in the history of the, the market. Just because I mean, it had it had it, it's actually very it's very rare to find a, a deal with a fifty percent spread where you don't have one of like the obvious uh, problems with the deal. So like obvious problems are antitrust is an obvious one. Um, like shareholder, like one, like the shareholders of the buyer potentially being against the deal or like the risk of, there's always like, in a lot of cases, there's a risk that like the buyer gets, um, gets purchased by another company or something. And then that causes the deal to implode. There's a, but none of, none of those things, there, there was no regulatory risk. There was no, the government wasn't going to step in and break it up. The only thing you had to analyze was, uh, the, you know, Musk's legal case. One of the legal experts that I followed, whose comments were extremely valuable, was the account Chancery Daily. They cover the Delaware court where merger disputes are typically heard. Here's Chance. She's the editor. So we've been around for the last decade. We basically follow everything that happens in the Delaware Court of Chancery. Um, We summarize every opinion. We attend hearings. We read transcripts of hearings. We read briefs and filings. We, we follow every case from its inception, basically to its, to its close. We are sort of just obsessively, uh, on the beat of the Delaware court of chancery. We publish a daily email that is incredibly dense and sort of full of legalese it's 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 for practitioners by former practitioners where three of us are delaware lawyers now that i've offered some context as to why i was even involved in this thing and also the kinds of people i was relying on for information let's go back to the beginning why was elon musk buying twitter and why did it turn into such a complete grease fire here's chance again like the first thing that we see in terms of his DMs and Twitter is that he gets locked out of his account in January. And he has he has like a pain in the ass time getting back into the account. They've got to like call the emergency hotline for important people. They've got to call, you know, he's like the prime user of this of this platform, right? He uses it way more than all the Twitter executives. Like he uses he like lives basically he through Twitter in some way. And he has to deal with it. Like he has to like leave an important meeting to like call the 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 helpline and like you know FaceTime them or whatever. And they're just like he and his assistant are going back and forth about like how are we going to get this resolved. And it's like clearly, it's like one of his prime objectives. Like he's like I'll leave this important meeting so that I can handle getting back into my Twitter account. And I just have this theory that he was like, what's up? Like I'm gonna I'm gonna buy this damn thing. Like this is ridiculous. How could they lock me out of my account? Musk reportedly started acquiring shares of Twitter on January 31st, and by the middle of March, he had acquired more than 9% of the company. I will just point out that SEC rules require that once you own more than 5% of a company, you file a form called a 13G. Well, Elon is on record with the fact that he does not respect the SEC, and it turns out he also does not respect Form 13G. He filed it late, and reasonable inference is that he did that to save money on the rest of his purchases. If the market got wind that Elon was buying, the price would go up. So he broke the rules, probably for his own benefit, and probably at the expense of the investors he was buying from. That doesn't have much to do with the merger, except that it illustrates right out of the gate, something that Musk watchers are accustomed to seeing. Not only does he not see rules as things to be followed, he sometimes takes the existence of rules as a suggestion to do exactly the opposite. Here's Chris again. The force of his will and personality and 
audacity has rolled a lot of people and he's been able to do things that a lot of other people wouldn't try. And a lot of other people would have had, would assume, I think correctly that they would have had a ton of jeopardy for uh, either public relations or real legal jeopardy. Um, uh, and I think he leans into this a bit, you know, he'll sign a non-disclosure or non-disparagement contract or settlement and he'll go on Twitter typically and aggressively disparage the other party almost immediately, almost to kind of prove to himself and his followers, like leaning into being unconstrained. Uh, he's somebody in so many different audiences throughout his career who's been kind of a fake it till you make it kind of guy who wings it magnificently. Uh, uh, he's very unconstrained and things that he does beyond normal constraints have been on average really successful for him. April had to have been an incredibly gross time for all involved. It started out with some real kumbaya shit. You know, the Twitter board and management had to pretend like they were excited about their new shareholder. And Elon had to pretend like he wasn't up to exactly what he was up to. There was a hot minute where he was going to join the board, but the group hug didn't last long. One day, Elon tweeted, is Twitter dying? Question mark. And the whole charade was over. He and Twitter CEO Prague Agrawal had a text exchange where the pretense of being friendly was dropped. That interaction with Parag is one of the quintessential sort of like, things are going fine. And then Brett Taylor's like, so man, what's up? You know, how you doing? And he's like, I talked, you know, basically I told Parag, F off. I'm not joining the board. It's like he goes from zero to from a hundred to zero in like three minutes. Like it, it, whatever happened, Parag doesn't seem, he doesn't occur to me like, such a controversial kind of personality. So after everyone stopped pretending that Elon would cooperate with management, all that was left was for him to make an offer. He offered $54 and 20 cents a share. And there was a little back and forth over whether the price could be improved, but they ended up agreeing to the deal at that price. It was probably a 50% premium to the price before Elon bought his shares. So from that standpoint, it was a good deal for shareholders. But Elon was the only buyer, and so his first offer was also his last offer. Here's Chris again. He says that while the price didn't reflect a competitive atmosphere, the merger agreement did. It was structured like an agreement where there might be multiple buyers. Uh, there was only one buyer, uh, but the merger agreement would have been similar to uh, ha had there been, and it was because of the enthusiasm and urgency that that one buyer had. Uh, he was. Uh, energetic and eager to buy it and offered a big price and offered a big price with a very high level of certainty uh, that he explained was intended to offer a very high level of certainty. Uh, this was part of his pitch. The agreement was filed with the SEC on April 25th, 2022. Initially, the market assigned a high probability to the deal closing. For about two weeks, the price of the stock held firmly in the high 40s. So only a 10% discount. Then on May 13th, Elon tweeted that he was putting the deal on hold until Twitter could prove that spam and fake accounts were fewer than 5% of users. That was the pivotal moment in the merger, the shot heard round the merger arb world, so to speak. The stock dropped to a level where Evan and Chris got interested. 
once he uh, sent that tweet out saying deal on hold uh, until you know bot verification, well, you know, until Twitter can prove that less than five percent are bots, I was immediately like, I, I immediately knew like, wait a second, like that doesn't sound that doesn't sound right. Like you you know there there's very specific reasons why you can get out of a merger contract, um, and you know the that didn't sound to me like one of the reasons. Um, and, and the reason why I was familiar with this was I, we, we occasionally do um, do merger ARB deals. I mean, we're not by any means uh, primarily a, a merger ARB uh, shop, but um, we will look at them when they when they blow out. So like there was a there was a day like I forget this must have been like seven or eight years ago where where a bunch of deals broke um, because the U.S. government was you know trying to stop companies from moving their headquarters uh, overseas. So you might remember like the Covidian and Medtronic deal, uh, and there was there was I forget the other ones, um, and the spreads just blew out huge because one deal got blocked and people were worried about it, and so that that that's usually when we kind of sharpen our pencils on merger arb situations. The Cliff's notes on the bot issue is that Elon was probably buying Twitter for its users. I mean, the site didn't really make any money, certainly not enough to justify the price, but it had a lot of users that could be a base for Elon's future plans. And let's just call these users monetizable daily active users, or MDAO, because that's what they're called in Twitter's SEC filings. Well, Elon's claim was that Twitter was underestimating the number of bots on the platform and therefore was overestimating MDAO, and he didn't want to pay for bots. And like the like I said, the bot issue was such a transparent pretext to get out of the deal that I mean, it's like I was talking with someone the other day, and it was like it's like if if someone came to buy your house and they they um. You, you know, you sign the contract and they, they put out a press release saying, yeah, we're going to buy John's house. Um, you know, th- there there's some mold in the roof, um, but, you know, we got the best mold guys in the in the in the in the business. Um, you know, we're, we're buying it uh, at a good price. And, you know, we've got some new techniques we're going to take to this mold and, you know, we're really going to eradicate it and uh, it's going to be a great house and blah, blah, blah. And then a week after you sign, you signed the contract. He he te- he he sends you an email and saying, "Yeah, actually, the deal is on the the deal is off because we found mold in the roof." Like that's that's literally what happened with the Twitter deal. Like he 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 put out a press release saying that um <laughs> that the first press release was we're doing the Twitter deal and we're gonna fight the bots and blah blah blah. And then a week and then like two weeks later he or three weeks later he says we're not the deal is off because we found out that there's bots. I mean it was just complete nonsense. Anytime the bot issue would come up. Elon would talk about how his replies were overwhelmed with spam from bot accounts. But Chris explains why Elon's experience probably wasn't typical. There's another aspect to that, which is I think that there are fewer, there's a lower percentage of bots than there is bot behavior, right? The bots are more active than the average human user, number one. And two, the bots are most active at very large accounts like his. So, um, I don't have a huge preference to have the audience that I would get by even interacting with some huge account, unless I had some reason to, uh, and I'm not terribly active, but a bot could easily be uh, a million times as active as I am and focused on large accounts. So his awareness of them is probably higher than their percentage on the site. Through May and June, we got a lot of he said, she said from Twitter and Elon over the bot issue. Elon would ask Twitter for information about how the stats were calculated, and then Twitter would provide an answer, and then Elon would accuse them of playing a shell game. But Twitter wasn't really obligated to provide him with much information. The contract limited the kinds of things that he could ask for, 
and mostly he could only get stuff that helped him to close the deal. Uh, it's also was limited not just to information needed to close the deal. It was limited to information uh, by the in the business judgment of the target uh, based on whether it could be uh, competitively sensitive. And this buyer said he might launch a competitor. So it's not some kind of uh, hypothetical concern that it could somehow leak from the buyer to a competitor. If it's important information, it's kind of tautologically going to a potential competitor because he said he was a potential competitor. Uh, And he said he was a potential competitor and he was also somebody seeking to leave the deal. Uh, So he kind of was holding out his identity as somebody who you'd have the very highest standard for giving that information out. Uh, He's somebody who had recently violated non-disparagement, non-disclosures, kind of joked about when Twitter had kind of called him on that a little bit. So you would have all sorts of different legal liabilities if you just kind of tossed him the keys before the deal was closed. Twitter's SEC filings basically said something like, here's our best guess about the number of bots. Our guess could be wrong. They stopped just short of including a shrug emoji. Twitter in 2018 was dealing with settled a shareholder suit from 2018 about misleading representations around MDAO. This issue for people who know what has been going on with Twitter has been out there forever. It is nothing new. I don't think anyone who works at Twitter, I don't think anyone on the board at Twitter, I don't think anyone thinks that MDAO is some like, you know, untouchably perfect uh, distillation of absolute wisdom about the blah, 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 blah. I don't, I don't think that there's any question that there's, you know, whatever, there's something, it's an imperfect science, etc. However, the thing that I think Chancellor McCormick was always crystal clear about and would have exercised her ability to see right through all of the nonsense is that That's something that Musk should have, could have, would have investigated before he signed on the dotted line of the document that he signed. And so whether or not there was really an issue with MDAO, whether or not Twitter was like trying to put him off because it just didn't want to provide more documents, he negotiated for a very narrow set of information, right? He negotiated this contract to be what the contract was, and he didn't take very long to do that negotiation, and he didn't do nearly enough or any due diligence before signing. And I think that the whole point of corporate law is to provide stability and deal certainty. And it was all of that stuff that everyone agreed. I think no one really disputed that he really, these would have been great things to investigate before you put $44 billion on the line. This may all seem like a lot of minutia, but this trade required that you understand all of the issues and come up with an estimate that the deal could be completed and also that your estimate would be better than the market's. So I'm spending a lot of time on these issues because they were core to the trade. If you're going to hypothesize that Elon's complaints about bots were not sincere, and there's some other motivation behind his attempts to get out of the deal, then you have to come up with an explanation that fits the facts. I think Chris's explanation works pretty well. Uh, So what happened? Well, it became very clear that nobody else bid or was going to bid. That's a little nerve wracking. You know, when you're looking at some property, uh, somebody else wants it too. It's kind of comforting. Uh, Secondly, between the time that he signed the contract and the time that he purported to terminate, 
Tesla shares had fallen precipitously. The market had fallen generally, but social media platforms had fallen in particularly. And so the number of shares, if you kind of mentally account for this contract across his whole net worth, kind of net of Tesla, the cost had gone up pretty uh, significantly in the number of Tesla shares he'd have to sell to get the deal done. And uh, I think that weighed on him uh, heavily. And it was a tumultuous time. I think if you look at the macro environment and the news cycle of things that uh, one might worry about, he was worried about. And and it came out uh, pretty specifically in the discovery process that he had worries that were macro, general, economic, news flow. uh, And I suspect uh, a lot of it was related to what it would cost him in terms of Tesla shares. So May and June were largely about saber rattling over the bot issue. But then in July, things got very real. Elon sent a letter where he said he was canceling the deal, mostly because of the bots. The week after the termination letter also marked a low period for the stock. It fell to the $32 range on that Monday morning. If you talk to people who got involved in the trade, they have purchases that range from the May deal on hold tweet through June into July and then also some in August as well. Here's Evan Tyndall. Well, I mean, we made a decent sized position at first, maybe like 8 to 10% uh, of our portfolio, but eventually we took it to about about 20% of the portfolio. So that was like, I don't, I don't know, eight, 8 to $10 million or something like that um, in, in the end. But it was, yeah, the biggest bet we've ever made at cost, 20% of the portfolio. We were flat on the year and the market was down 20 or whatever, like going into this, uh, going into like the before Elon sent his letter. So... You know, we were even if we had lot like if the stock had had crumbled fifth, like let's just say it crumbled from forty to twenty, so it was down fifty percent, and we lost ten percent of ten um, percent of our you know investors' capital um, on, on the deal, which I thought was you know again like a super unlikely thing to happen. We would still have been you know outperforming the market on the year, so I think that gave us a little bit more. Um, you know, obviously we still would make the bets that we think are best for our clients, but that, that felt like it gave us a little bit more, uh, leeway to, uh, to go out on a limb, uh, you know, rather than you know, just, just, uh, play it really close to the vest. Chris says that his fund also used the low prices in July to reduce their average cost. Uh, we, uh, bought some, uh, fairly early on, call it mid, uh, June, $38 or so and then got considerably larger as uh, it played out. We bought a significant more uh, in July uh, when it got down closer to 32, uh, and then also were involved via options as well as equity. Chancery Daily basically rebooted their Twitter account at the start of the legal case, and then Chance became the must-follow to get both information and analysis on the deal. She had incredibly valuable insight, and yet she didn't take a position in the stock. I had made a conscious decision in the, in, at the outset when I decided to report on this case publicly that I wouldn't take a position because I knew, just as my own human mind, I, I knew that, the, that when I was trying to live tweet a hearing, uh, report these things almost in real time as they came out, that any kind of 
even a minor kind of bias toward the desire for one outcome or the other would be too hard to overcome, especially in the moment, especially when I was like already taxing my mind so hard to do so much on the fly. I mean, I'm trying to summarize what the court is saying, summarize what the attorneys are saying, think about how those arguments are going to play, think about how it's going to impact the outcome. Like it was just already so on the, on the borderline of what my brain is capable of that I knew that if I added that kind of like, oh, it'd be really nice if the, you know, this deal would or wouldn't go through was on my mind that I, it would just be, it would like, it would have set me over the edge. And so I didn't take a position, but honestly, like, I mean, I knew from the outset, like, I, I don't know, people have done various like back of the napkin calculations about how much money I potentially like made people in the sense that they listened to what I was saying factually about the case and they bet on it with, you know, good bits of their own money and they made a lot of money. And so it was um, fascinating, I guess. It, it, I took the responsibility very seriously. From early July to early August, the market got more optimistic about Twitter's case for a few reasons. First. Twitter was first to file a lawsuit in the Delaware Court of Chancery, and their arguments looked very strong. They were asking the court to force Elon to close. It's called specific performance. Also, not only had the Delaware court recently awarded specific performance in busted merger deals, but the most recent opinion had been written by the same judge assigned to the Twitter lawsuit. Lots of the people watching the deal got a crash course in the Court of Chancery, but investors who had done these kinds of trades were well aware of this court. Evan had prior experience. Uh, so I had done some work on this type of situation and I have learned a lot about like just how hard it is to get out of deals. I mean, the, 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 the reason, you know, these contracts are entered into by, by sellers is because they have a lot of protections. Um, the, the, the buyer can't just, can't just back out for any reason. There has to be a very specific set of reasons and anything to do with like anything that's like common to the industry or, you know, a million other reasons, a million other things are actually carved out of those, of those clauses. Um, and so I, I had also had, we had also, I'd also had some experience with the, the court of chancery in Delaware, uh, just in general. So at, at my old, um, the, the, the hedge fund I was at before, we were one of the largest shareholders in the, the Dell appraisal case which was when Michael Dell was trying to uh, or, or was buying out, um, you know, doing LBO of, you know, his namesake company, Dell, uh, Dell Inc. But I just remembered, um, I, I'll never forget one of the, the, the judges in that case, just, uh, you know, what, there was someone who was testifying who was like a, someone, I think he was a, a high up in uh, BCG or, you know, one of these consulting firms. I'm sure like probably the guy's probably worth like a hundred million dollars or something. And, and, you know, thinks he's, thinks he's a big shot. But when he came to testify in the court of chancery, the judge absolutely just dressed him down kind of in front of everyone uh, for not answering the questions. Um, he was, he just was kind of like refusing to answer the questions in a straightforward way. And I, I just remember him getting, getting red in the face uh, and being really embarrassed. And, and, and I just thought to myself like, wow, these judges really, they do not, they do not care who you are. They absolutely do not care who you are. If you don't answer the questions, like you're, you're going to get potentially held in contempt of court, basically. There are a number of unexpected heroes to emerge from this case, but maybe the MVP was the judge in the Delaware court. Technically, she's a chancellor, Chancellor Kathleen McCormick. She is one of these people that seems almost impossibly smart and impossibly competent. For the first hearing in the case, she had COVID, but she didn't reschedule. She just plowed right ahead. And she processed data and arguments and filings in the case. 
I'm guessing tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of pages, with the staggering efficiency you might observe in a wood chipper. Also, she's kind of funny. She wrote this important opinion about busted mergers, where the target company was in the business of selling cake supplies, and on page one of the opinion, she said that the private equity buyer lost their appetite. There's a range in how smart judges are. This judge is at the uh, kind of uh, right side of the bell curve uh, in terms of her ability to assimilate a ton of information uh, quickly. I mean, she's just a, a productivity uh, machine in terms of cranking out uh, decisions along the way, procedural and substantive. The suit and countersuit between Musk and Twitter could have resulted in a number of different outcomes, and each would have had its own implication for the stock price. So you basically had to handicap the odds of various outcomes. One option was specific performance. Basically, Musk could be forced to close. Or maybe instead, Elon would have to pay damages to Twitter. Or maybe Twitter was the party at fault, and the court would find that they had breached the merger agreement. Or maybe they'd even defrauded Musk. Or maybe Elon could get out of closing if Twitter had suffered a material adverse effect. If you're wondering what would constitute a material adverse effect, you're not alone. It's not 100% clear. I mean, it's all very complicated. But these are the kinds of issues that Chancellor McCormick deals with every day. Yeah, I think she just has a particular knack for making things incredibly clear that can be easily made complex and complicated. She's always dealing with intricate fact patterns and, you know, uh, taking hundreds of pages of nuanced assertions and legal positions and factual background pieces and just like the incision that, she, that her, I see her, like the, 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 the lasers just shooting out of her eyes, the way that she can hone in on what actually matters on the moment where that rubber is going to meet the road. There is just, I have never seen a jurist who is so clear headed about that, who can put her eyes on the, the absolute bottom line, just like, like it's just the only thing that she sees. Like it's so the clarity with which she can tune out everything. All the, these, these are like the most, the highest paid lawyers, the most, you know, high performing advocates who are just trying to confuse her, who are just, that's what you're normally doing when you have bad facts or bad laws. You're just trying to trip the judge up into seeing something that's not there or reading something in your particular spin, whatever. She is so good at never being drawn into that. Chancellor McCormick also seems to be the rare individual whose substantial abilities are accompanied by zero bluster. During the hearings for this case, she would listen for long periods of time and then would interject rarely with a very small voice and her few words would often be deadly, perhaps the quietest words to ever move markets. She is soft-spoken. She is, you know, small in stature. She is like a, a, a gentle kind of persona, but she will not like she she will she will yeah she will kill with her her gaze if if it's appropriate like if it if that is what if if you are on the wrong side of the line you are on the wrong side of the line there's nothing personal about it it's just that she's not going to sugarcoat the outcome even though the, her presentation and her you know her 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 demeanor is certainly uh sweet and and gentle and 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 just kind of like nice you know it's she's she's got a nice personality um but that doesn't 
hide the fact that she is ruthlessly fair and uh, ruthlessly clear-minded about what is going on in front of her. I think one worry going into the court case was that maybe a judge would look at the staggering wealth and influence of the buyer and just fudge things a little in favor of that kind of power. Nothing egregious, but just find an excuse that would be defensible in order to land on Elon's side. But that did not appear to be happening in this case. Early in the case, there was a high-stakes hearing to determine the scheduling of the trial. Elon's side wanted more time, and Twitter wanted an expedited schedule. It would have been a huge win for Elon if he could have stretched things out over six months, because it would have increased his leverage over Twitter. But McCormick ruled in favor of Twitter. Specific performance looked very much on the table, but also her entire demeanor seemed to be treating Elon Musk not better or worse than anybody else. And I think anybody else bringing this case would have had an extremely weak hand. There was nothing. She didn't. She was not a fangirl. She was not. Uh, she was not enamored or shaken by press or the bigness of this. I mean, when you know, the precedents were much smaller than this deal, uh, she seemed extremely comfortable in her role. I mean, the fact that she assigned herself the case should make it no surprise that she was comfortable. But I thought I was right. So to the extent that I was right, I wanted somebody who was very smart and poised. So the fact that I got it made me think that my own conclusion was likely to correlate with the outcome here. And I would have been less sure of that if I had gotten a judge who was less astute or more shaken by the scale or fame of this case. The early media commentary around the case included comments from some serious people that said that Twitter would not be able to force a closing. And they had various arguments for how Elon could get out of it. But one of the people who mentioned this idea was a former Delaware Supreme Court justice. This is a brief excerpt of Justice Carolyn Berger's interview on CNBC, where she said that Twitter had a good case for damages, but probably wouldn't be able to force a closing. Uh, The problem with specific performance, especially with Elon Musk, is that it's unclear whether the order of the court would be obeyed. Throughout the trade, there had been people who argued that Elon always wins. And here was a former Delaware Supreme Court justice saying exactly how it might happen. It was not great. But Chris was not persuaded. In the case of the CNBC interview, I thought that was perhaps particularly strange. Uh, The idea that let's not enforce the law. Uh, He won't like it. It'll hurt our credibility if we do something and he, he doesn't. Kind of, he becomes this kind of rogue domestic pirate, kind of, uh, of kind of zooming around the plains of Texas, laughing at the Delaware court, which, which I think, I think there would be quite a few ways of enforcing it. I thought, I thought it was strange, and maybe uh, if I was going to try to explain it, the only way I could come up with would be to say she was from a different earlier era where maybe the court didn't have an, as much credibility, and you had to kind of uh, be deferential to the characters involved. But I thought that's anathema to what the rule of law means. You know, you treat rich people and famous people the same way you treat poor people and unknown people. Chant says that she has a lot of respect for Justice Berger, and she understands the idea behind the comment. The optimal outcome was for the court not to have to be the one to enforce this contract. The optimal outcome was for 
this thing to resolve itself. That is always the optimal outcome in litigation is for the parties, especially when the outcome is that the parties reach the deal as it was originally intended to be closed and they close it together of their own volition. So to the extent that that was like the, the best option, I think that what Justice Berger said was accurate. Like no court wants to just willy nilly put their enforcement power on the line, especially up against this completely unknown uh, chaos agent in some people's opinion, who will clearly take actions that most people would feel constrained by societal mores or whatever not to take. So in that sense, it was accurate, right? That like no one wants to, uh, to, to put that at risk for the court. You don't want to have your powers flouted. You don't want to have someone, you know, be in contempt of an, of a $44 billion order for specific performance. It raises a lot of issues that would be incredibly complex and difficult to deal with. But Chant says that she didn't think that Chancellor McCormick would hesitate to award specific performance. Also, if that ruling were appealed to the Delaware Supreme Court, it wasn't a get-out-of-jail-free card for Musk. So two key arguments that had been advanced against specific performance probably weren't that strong. It was pretty clear to me, Chancellor McCormick just wrote KK last year. I don't think that her position on the whole bowl of wax had changed, right? I think she still, she's, she's a very reliable jurist. I think that she would have looked at this case in, in many ways, similarly to how she looked at that one, obviously with whatever differences in the contractual language there would have been. But the, the idea that then if she had granted specific performance in this case, which again, I think she immediately signaled from the jump that she was not afraid to do if it was the appropriate remedy. And she thought that there was good reason to think it could be the only appropriate remedy. The parties specifically contracted for it clearly and obviously, uh, which is, you know, something that I think got short shrift in, in the kind of contrarian position. But the, the, the idea that then Musk would have had to put up a bond on appeal of 44 billion plus whatever kind of interest we were looking at, maybe a $50 billion supersedious bond on appeal. This is not a cheap proposition. I don't even know that there is an issuer who would have been willing to issue that bond with an Elon Musk kind of discount factor on it. I was fine taking a small position early on when I knew very little about the legal case. But over time, my conviction grew. And it grew from following people like Chance as well as the law professors Ann Lipton and Eric Talley, and also the Bloomberg writer, Matt Levine. So finding these experts and then aggregating their opinions is the thing that allowed me to increase my position. Evan and Chris had prior experience in this kind of trade, so they didn't have to rely as much on outside opinions, but they still paid attention. Uh, there were you know, three names that kind of come to the front uh, in my mind, but certainly more um, of people who are super active on Twitter, who were excellent. Uh, the big difference was not institutional or even experiential. I think the big difference were people who kind of are primary source focused and people who are secondary. There's kind of a ridiculous game of telephone that happened with a lot of the Tesla uh, uh, themed followers, but of the really serious people, uh, Professor Ann Lipton, uh, Professor uh, from uh, Tulane, uh, who is 
spectacularly smart, serious person. He's on Twitter all the time for all sorts of uh, things that she's interested in, but kind of like the very top of her uh, profession, uh, a, a giant. Um, the the one of the people uh, who uh, attracted a big following uh, justly throughout this uh, writes uh, Chancellery Daily, the publication that follows the Chancellery Court. Um, it was just extremely good, uh, a, 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 a fun writer, but a very serious uh, person uh, with very serious kind of um, writing, uh, nuanced, uh, bright, but kind of primary source driven. Uh, again, not kind of distracted by the uh, kind of razzle-dazzle aspect of the buyer. Let me let me say one other compliment to Chancellor Daly in terms of uh, her relevance throughout this is she was kind of a, a Chancellor Kathleen McCormick uh, whisperer. She knew, uh, I by reputation, know of this uh, judge, hugely admire her, and obviously read all of her decisions and had a view of how she would see this. But uh, Chancellor Daly, you know, spent way more time than I following her. And so I think this was probably the account readily available to the Arab community and beyond who is most attuned to this judge. Evan also had access to a Delaware lawyer that provided insight into both the case and the judge. We also had our own um, counsel in in Delaware that we have worked with before that I I would uh, talk to occasionally about the you know, the finer points of uh, Delaware law and court of chancery uh, dealings. Um, it's always interesting to hear, you know, that, that actually gave us a lot of confidence in the beginning was talking to our, our, our friend, uh, our lawyer in Delaware, who um, just talked about how, uh, how easily uh, Chancellor McCormick uh, sees through bullshit. Like I had seen that in other judges in the court of chancery, but I wasn't, I, I wasn't uh, super familiar with, with her, to be honest. But that that was just an interesting, you know, it's always interesting to talk to somebody who goes to, you know, to barbecues and birthday parties and whatnot with someone to see, uh, you know, to have like a second uh, look at to kind of what their personality is rather than just, uh, you know, what they say in their in their opinions. Um, so that that definitely helped us uh, gain some some conviction, I think. The odd thing about this trade is that there was a puzzle that I think you had to assemble in order to really understand the opportunity. But the difficult part of the puzzle wasn't really the legal case. That part was actually fairly straightforward. And it was just, it was the worst, it was the worst legal case I've ever seen, period, basically. I mean, it was, it was a joke. I mean, it was, it, there, there was literally no chance he was going to convince a, a judge that um, the, 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 the bot issue was fraud or, or, um, or, or, or added up to a material adverse effect. There was zero percent chance. So, and but you, but but on top of that, you had a fifty percent spread. Fifty percent. I mean, that's really rare in the arb in the arb, arbitrage world. But like the irony of the whole thing is that the legal case was pretty paltry. It was just kind of like stupid. It was so trivial, which is why it was a perfect arbitrage opportunity, even though Elon Musk is such an unknown kind of a variable that can insert so much chaos. Because the law was pretty clear for the people who knew the the 
judge and the law of the land where the case was being heard. It, it is not the law everywhere. It is not the law in even contracts, case books necessarily, but it, it certainly was fairly clear on the law for a Delaware lawyer who knows the Delaware Court of Chancery. This case was such a clear trial of Delaware and of contracts that either you could make some money along the way or the entire profession would be called into question because it'd be very hard for me the next morning. I mean, I look at, you know, I don't know, one contract a day for the past 25 years. Uh, and at some point, if you can't make this call, you're not going to be able to make any call because it was so one-sided and it would just mean that we're in chaos, that you can just say things on Twitter and be rich and powerful and do whatever you want. If you try to talk to a normal person in the world about what happens on Twitter on a daily basis, don't be surprised if they look at you like you're explaining your favorite Microsoft Excel keyboard shortcuts. Normal people just do not care about this second tier social network. But for the people on Twitter, it's everything. I got all of my information from Twitter and Chance found a much larger audience there. She live tweeted hearings about the Twitter merger on Twitter. Elon Musk basically made a $44 billion offer because he likes to tweet. He announced that his deal was on hold on Twitter. He trolled and harassed the Twitter executives on Twitter. And he also shot himself in the foot related to his various claims on Twitter. He did as much undermining of his legal case as you can imagine on Twitter. Here's Chris again. Well, well, almost never do you have somebody who's so unconstrained in terms of their public utterances, right? Uh, <laughs> um, discussing casually deals at all hours on Twitter, including trashing the management of the company that you're buying. I mean, I've never seen something quite like that before, probably not since. So uh, how much you want to weigh the kind of superficial rhetoric versus the underlying documents and the underlying primary sources. And also a situation where many of the things I look at have a very specialized, very small audience, especially smaller cap, more out of the way equities. It could be that a small handful of people analyze the merger contract and the proxy and nobody else is even aware of the situation. Uh, here you have somebody with you know 100 million followers and this huge fan base that kind of casually are just rooting for him the way you'd root for a sports team and would pick out little aspects of the contract or little kind of hopes in Elon getting what he wanted and just kind of repeat it endlessly, almost like Tourette's. I mean, just kind of say again and again that you know he can do things that were not legally supported, but but, but that they, they wanted to be true, they thought were true, repeated. Uh, and so the, the power of one of two sides to kind of control the superficial narrative or this, the, the public perception was new. And I think that that affected the price and just the willingness of one of two parties to say and do things that would normally have been discouraged by advisors. Because Twitter is the preferred venue for Musk's thoughts, there are also camps of people on Twitter who are pro-Elon and anti-Elon. The pro-camp's position is that he is saving humanity, and also he made them a lot of money. The anti-camp's position is that he is basically the monorail salesman from The Simpsons. And the two groups have daily rhetorical skirmishes where they delight in dunking on the other side. 
I am pretty up to speed on these two camps because I've dabbled in a little shorting of Tesla stock over the years. I was lucky in terms of timing, so I didn't get completely run over. But if I'd just been long instead, I would have actually made money, so that's not great. Anyway, it did have one benefit, because I learned a lot about Elon Musk, and that knowledge was very important for this trade. Chance was really not aware of these competing pro and anti-Elon churches, but she got a quick education once she started reporting on this case. I did definitely did not personally have this kind of worldview of like, what is the the canon of this world that everyone's playing this game in and people on Twitter like knew a lot of information about who's who and what's what and who happened, you know, what's all of the backstory. And that was all information that was certainly shared with me. I mean, I would be live tweeting a, a court hearing and be like, what did, what was that name that just got said? And everybody would be right on Johnny on the spot, DMing me and telling me, you know, what all these things I didn't know, these little factual nuances that just weren't on the top of my mind. Like they were on so many tops of so many people's minds. I mean, I kind of knew, but I had never certainly been right in the middle of it. I had never been in the eye of that hurricane and it was, you know, navigating that was like fascinating because I would say the most anodyne thing and people would be like, why are you such a musk hater? And I I would just, I didn't know how much rhetoric was out there on either side that was kind of guiding this, this discussion in the background that was always present for people who are so immersed in it on a day-to-day basis. I was just kind of like walking in like a rube, you know, like, Hey, what's up with, and I would say this, the silliest thing and people would get so offended and it took me a good while. Not sure I'm totally there yet, but it, it took me a while just to even figure out like what was going to trigger people's emotions. What was going to set people off. Sometimes I felt like I was just, you know, like in this whole culture war that I didn't even, I didn't, I didn't feel particularly like I was on one side or the other. I have always been kind of like, I don't know, not here, neither here nor there about Elon Musk. You know, I mean, I had like reserved a Tesla, whatever the little SUV one was, and then I test drove it and I didn't like it. So I got my deposit back, but like I was gonna buy a Tesla. And then I, you know, I think he has a hundred dollars of mine on a cyber truck deposit from five years ago that I don't know what happened to that. But like, I wasn't an anti Elon Musker. If you're betting on something, then it can be very helpful to hear differing opinions because it's an antidote to becoming overly certain. So it makes sense to engage with the other side. But Chris says that these contrary opinions didn't really deliver what you would want from them. And he'd have this big group of followers who would kind of go along with whatever he wanted. But you also had analysts, sell-side analysts who covered Tesla and uh, investors or traders who kind of followed him in different things in the past who were jumping on this. And it was kind of preposterous, right? They were talking about uh, the legal case and they weren't really uh, accustomed to doing that. It was much more advocacy commentary than analytical commentary. Uh, One thing that you find commonly when somebody doesn't have differentiated sources, when they don't have differentiated judgment or information is constant references to the share price. Oh my goodness. I mean, I had a huge exposure here and I think I was paying less attention to the share price than some of the Elon Musk fans. Uh, it's completely circular and backwards. It's like running a race against somebody and they know where you're going and you don't know where you're going. How can you win the race? Because you're following them in order to beat them, to follow a share price in order to beat it. It's a, it's a circular reference and a waste of time. 
And a huge part of, you know, there's a problem because the market says there's a problem. It's going to break because Elon says it's going to break. Some of the Wall Street analysts made even weirder arguments. They would go, uh, yeah, Twitter's case is pretty airtight. You know, Elon doesn't have a leg to stand on. This thing is pretty lopsided. And that's why I think they'll settle the lawsuit and he'll get a $4 billion discount. I promise I am only barely exaggerating. I start to pay a lot of attention to you and your opinion really on three grounds. One, your inf- the quality of your information. So if you use uh, primary sources, um, if you've carefully read a document, uh, I care so much more about what you think of that document. And the kind of thing I mentioned earlier when somebody cites selectively and the point is undermined by the preceding and subsequent sentences or paragraphs, that's something that causes me to degrade the perspective. Uh, Secondly, whether or not you have different information sources, if you have some kind of judgment that's really variant, and it's going to almost always be somebody who naturally thinks and organizes their thoughts probabilistically. Uh, So I kind of degrade things that are based on secondary sources. Most of the must fans are games of telephone. And if you don't think probabilistically, if you're kind of certain and shrill, uh, I degrade that source quite a bit versus somebody who is uh, probabilistic. Uh, And thirdly, I uh, listen up when somebody cheats. Uh, If somebody who has uh, uh, some, uh, and I mean cheating colloquially, if they're an insider, uh, if they have some perspective that is unique to their vantage point, uh, I'm going to want to pay a lot more attention to that view as well. And the anti-Twitter side had all of the uh, characteristics that I take less seriously. The short version of the Twitter ARB thesis was that the merger agreement was more binding than the stock price reflected, and the court was likely to grant specific performance. I want to be fair to the opposing opinion because I spent a lot of time trying to think about how it could be right, but it was generally something like, Elon always wins. I mean, there is a beauty to the simplicity of the argument, and I will also grant that as an empirical matter, it's pretty close. But it's just not developed enough to take seriously, and so I spent a lot of time thinking about how to make a more defensible version of it. If it's directionally right, what would a more detailed version of the argument look like? I think probably the most compelling thing I could come up with was maybe Elon had some inside information. For example, when Theranos collapsed, it was common to hear that people in Silicon Valley whispered about the company being a scam. Elon's been around a long time, so maybe he heard something about Twitter and knew that if he got them into discovery, some fraud would emerge. That was my best attempt at forming a more defensible version of the Elon always wins argument. Chris had his own thoughts on ways that the trade could go against him. He didn't consider these things to be likely, but he was thinking about their potential. Categories included corruption, uh, pay the judge. Uh, categories included something completely new. Just, I mean, I, one reason why I like widespreads and dislike tight spreads is I think there's a unitary risk to anything you do. Um, uh, you should get paid a lot of money for any win because it has to pay for the losses uh, and the likelihood that something completely unexpected. I mean, there was a deal target at one point that shortly before the deal closed fell into a sinkhole. It was a facility and there was a, the earth kind of opened up and the company fell into the ground. Uh, uh, That was part of nobody's risk analysis. 
And uh, that could happen to one company as well as another company. Uh, so just something completely unexpected uh, at uh, Twitter. Uh, we thought there was not a material adverse effect. We thought they had lived up to their reps and warranties as far as we knew, but there's always some shots. So I'd say something completely new, uh, corruption. And, and we had no affirmative view that there was corruption, just the brainstorm on what could go wrong. And just things related to the fact that there is an individual versus a big entity as a buyer. So what if Elon died before the deal closed? Uh, I mean, there would be also putting together different things. So uh, uh, something that delayed the deal with something that changed the environment with something that ultimately was a real contract out. So, you know, most air disasters are six or seven things going wrong in the cockpit at the same time. Wide-bodied commercial aircraft are extremely safe, but they do crash every once in a while. And uh, the engineers have thought of everything, uh, but they haven't thought of every combination of things. And so a combination of uh, highly unusual events could have led to delay, could have led to something unexpected, could lead to the deal falling apart. But there, there was no one part of the contract or the deal that we thought had much of a shot of breaking it. I think it's fine to say that you looked at the odds of the legal case and they heavily favored Twitter. So the most likely outcome is that Elon will have to close. But markets are known to be mostly efficient. They don't just hand out free money. So even if you think you have a good understanding of the legal case, I think it's still imperative to try to understand why the market is offering the price it's offering. If you don't have a coherent story for why the mispricing exists, then you probably need to figure it out before you assume you have an edge. In this case, I think the error was largely concentrated around the person of Elon Musk and the way that he's misunderstood. What's most unique about it was that you have an individual a buyer uh, and somebody who had not done anything like this and probably will never do anything quite like this again. Um, and so that's tricky both in terms of analyzing probabilities, but it's also tricky in terms of position sizing, right? Even if you came to the conclusion that had quite a positive expected value, that was certainly my view, uh, there was the portfolio management difficulty of it that would be very different if there were 10,000 opportunities like this. Uh, you could have your winners pay for your losers with plenty left over. The problem is if you get this one wrong and this one breaks, you might be waiting a very long time if you say, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll wait for the... I actually think my probabilities were right. Too bad that I lost millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, that's, that's a shame, but I still had a positive expected value. I'll make it up on the next one. Well, there might not be one like this for 100 years. Uh, so um, so it's, it's hard to construct a portfolio of things like this. Um, I actually think that was a large part of the opportunity. I will offer a theory of how to understand Musk that is at odds with the prevailing view, but I think it has a lot of predictive power. If you're betting on the outcome of something he's involved in, you want to be able to see him for who he is and not any caricature that's been created by either his proponents or his detractors. I think the best way to understand him is as a riverboat gambler, very high stakes, and doesn't believe it's possible to take too much risk. If you view his actions through that lens, they all make a lot more sense. Here are some old media clips that date back to the time that Elon sold his first software company. 
Musk sold his software company, Zip2, which enabled newspapers to publish online for $400 million cash. It's sort of like a series of poker games. And now I've gone on to a more high-stake poker game and just carry those chips with me. And I haven't gone and taken my winnings and spent a big chunk, but I've just really put almost all of it back into the new game. I could go and buy one of the islands in the Bahamas uh, and turn it into my you know, personal fiefdom. Wow. I'm much more interested in trying to uh, build and create a new company. So this is an ATM. What we're going to do is transform the traditional banking industry. So Elon said that it's like a poker game, and he didn't take his chips off the table. His company, X.com, eventually merged with a Peter Thiel company, and together they became PayPal. Here's Thiel talking about Elon's willingness to take risk. The the chapter title on Elon at the time, um, Elon Musk, uh, was working with us very closely. Uh, We sort of combined two companies, uh, was going to be entitled The Man Who Knew Nothing About Risk. And and we had sort of all sorts of uh, all sorts of anecdotes that at the time seemed really crazy. So, you know, we were trying to, um, we were trying to, we had this payment system and then you were going to leverage it and add a, a credit card financial service. Um, and we had decided to give uh, credit cards to absolutely anybody who wanted them. You got up to $10,000 credit limit. Uh, Elon had told the uh, woman who was rolling the service out that he wanted a million people to be using the, uh, the new credit card by the end of the year. Um, it Fortunately, uh, it was it was about two levels down from the front page, and so not that many people were able to discover this. And pe- uh, some people did. They wrote us back and said, "You know, this is fantastic. I haven't had credit in years. I can't believe you're <laughs> offering me credit. I haven't even had a checking account in ten years." So you know, the, 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 these were people who wrote so many bad checks. The banks wouldn't allow them to have uh, checking accounts, and uh, you know, it turned out that we had we ended up with something like a fifty percent, um, something like a fifty percent. Uh, uh, chargeback rate. So the worst subprime companies are like four to six percent. And then happily, uh, we, we sort of rolled that, that product back very quickly. Teal is not saying, hey, look at this dumb idea. He's actually paying Elon a compliment because in these companies where they're trying to create something from nothing, all of the ideas will seem dumb unless they work. And he's saying, here's this guy whose superpower is that he just shrugs off all of the risks that most people would never take. When PayPal was sold to eBay, it generated about $180 million in proceeds for Elon. And by 2008, he had invested that money in Tesla and SpaceX. The entire amount. The story goes that he was borrowing money for rent. Keep in mind that the world economy was crashing at this time, so that is a very big gamble. And you can go through his history of running Tesla to find other similar massive gambles. Actually, he called the Model 3 a bet-the-company project. And it's not just that Elon is a risk-taker. He also combines that risk-taking with other behavior you would see in a gambler, like bluffing. His most famous tweet ever was a market-moving post about Tesla, and it was a bluff. The SEC alleges that on August 7, 2018, at approximately 12.48 p.m. Eastern Time, in the midst of market hours, Musk published a tweet to his 22 million Twitter followers in which he stated, I'm considering taking Tesla private at $420, funding secured. Investors and journalists contacted Tesla and asked whether the tweet was a joke. And NASDAQ, which requires its members to give the exchange advance notice of market-moving information, but had received no advance notice of the announcement, suspended trading for more than 90 minutes following the tweet. The response of Tesla's investor relations department is further evidence of the extent of confusion caused by Musk's conduct. As alleged in our complaint, over the course of the day on August 7th, Tesla's investor relations personnel 
took Musk's statements at face value, reassuring analysts that funding had in fact been secured for the transaction. The Investor Relations Department told analysts that there was, quote, firm offer and that, quote, the offer is as firm as it gets. At the end of the trading day on August 7th, Tesla stock closed at $379 per share, up more than 6%. According to the complaint, Musk's tweets were false and misleading. For example, his tweets that funding was secured and that investor support is confirmed were simply not true. He had neither secured a commitment from any source to provide funding for a transaction, nor confirmed investors' support. In fact, while leading Tesla's investors to believe that he had a firm offer in hand, we allege that Musk had arrived at the price of $420 by assuming a 20% premium over Tesla's then existing share price and then rounding up to $420 because of the significance of that number in marijuana culture and his belief that his girlfriend would be amused by it. When the SEC brought fraud charges over that tweet, Elon folded within days. He quickly settled the charges and paid millions of dollars in fines. He later said it was worth it. I guess if you bluff regularly, you can't get too upset when you get called once in a while. And there are lots of other examples of huge bluffs where he just didn't have it. He has a long history of making wild claims about self-driving cars. There are entire websites that detail all of the examples of what I am charitably calling bluffs. Here's Evan again. As a former professional poker player, he knows a little about bluffing. I mean, a lot, a lot of investors are like, listen, Elon's smart. He knows what he's doing. And if he says that he can get out of the deal, um, then, uh, you know, then he probably can get out of the deal. Or at least I, I'm not really too I'm not sure enough to make a bet. But I think but what you had to do is you, you can't just I mean, it's like you said, he, you can't just take everything he, he, he says at face value. Like you have to look at his, you have to look at his actual actions and the risks and rewards of what of, of, of his side of it. Even if he knew one hundred, even if he knew a hundred percent, he would lose that trial. It still makes complete sense to um, kind of pretend like there is a, a way for him to win because if he, it's like you said, he can bluff. Um, and the, the 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 cost of bluffing in this case was, I mean, it was uh, it was it was basis points on the on the end price, right? So. I mean, my God, if he could have gotten a 5% discount and saved himself $2 billion and had like a less leveraged uh, entity at the, at the end of this, I mean, that would have been a huge home run for him. Um, but I think people, most investors are just like, ah, Elon says he can get out of it. So um, they, they didn't even consider the idea that he, that he might be bluffing. Just because you know someone is capable of bluffing doesn't constitute proof that they're bluffing in any single instance. So you have to look at the evidence and figure out whether it lands more on the side of bluffing or more on the side of really trying to get out of the deal. Earlier I said that I got into this trade without experience in merger arb, but I thought I had some insight that was important for figuring out this puzzle. I have a day job brokering land development deals, so just think transactions between investors, speculators, and developers. Broken deals are very common in my world, and it's also very common to have price changes during escrow. Actually, some real estate grinders retrade the price as a matter of course, and they rely on their ability to get discounts as a source of edge. Once you've seen a lot of these things, you get a sense as to when a buyer is really trying to walk away versus when they just want a discount. Buyers that are willing to close but prefer to pay less have a psychological orientation that gives away their position. To give you an example, one time I had a developer send a note on the last day of their due diligence that said, you know, here are some problems with this project and it's going to be more expensive than we thought. 
so we need a discount. And in the same note, they said, also, we'd like to get permission to get our grading contractor on the site before closing as soon as possible. Okay, so that is not a good retrade game. They gave away the fact that in their mind, they were already developing the project. And so when you tell them, sorry, you know, there's no price change. And then they say, okay, we'll close anyway. It's not surprising. Basically, they already told you where they were at mentally. So let's get back to Elon and try to figure out whether he really wanted to walk away from Twitter or whether he really wanted to own it. This clip is an excerpt of comments he made at a Tesla shareholder meeting in August. It was about a month after his termination letter, and it was during the time that the various attorneys were fighting like cats and dogs in Delaware. And I think in the case of Twitter, since I use it a lot, um, shoot myself in the foot a lot, you know, uh, dig my grave, etc. Um, but, you know, I think it's, I, I do understand the product quite well, so I think I've got a good sense of, of where, to, where to point the engineering team uh, at Twitter to make it radically better. Um, and um, I, 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 do, I, I do sort of have a, well, a, a grander vision for what I thought X.com or X Corporation could have been back in the day. Um, it's, it's a pretty, pretty grand vision. And, and obviously that could be started from scratch or but I think Twitter would help accelerate that by three to five years. That is just not the mindset of someone walking away. He's talking about his ideas for fixing the product. He's talking about long-term potential. It's a guy who launches rockets talking about how Twitter is part of a grand vision. And that's not the only time he said something like that. He made very similar comments in May. Let me try to put a bow on the argument I am making here. For a gambler like Elon, the question isn't, am I likely to succeed with this court case? The question is, what will it cost to fail, and what are the odds of failure, versus what are the benefits of success, and what are the odds of succeeding? And to get more specific as to why I think Elon is largely misunderstood, his proponents and his detractors share a view which is marked by certainty. His proponents are certain that if he says there will be a million robotaxi Teslas on the road, he has done the calculations and it will happen. And his detractors are certain that if he is moving his mouth, he's lying. But the view I am advancing is that neither are correct, and instead, Elon just figures there's some upside to making the claim, the upside exceeds the downside, and if the probabilities change, or if the equities change, he can later change his strategy. And yes, sometimes that will involve throwing his hand away, like he did when the SEC went after him for the funding secured tweet. Here's Evan again. His strategy was smart because, I mean, at the end of the day, what did it cost him to try this? I mean, he probably, I mean, I don't know how much he paid in legal fees, $50 million or something. You know, if you combine it with Twitter's legal fees, maybe $100 million. But if he had just, if, if the Twitter board had been a little less sure of itself, you know, maybe they could, they, they, they might have, they, or, you know, or, or be- had believed that, you know, what, what he, what he claimed had some teeth to it somehow. Or perhaps if the Twitter, uh, you know, quarterly results had been like even worse than they actually were then maybe they would have gotten scared. Maybe they would have settled for like a two, three, four percent discount off the price. I mean, it still would have been a huge premium to um, to where it ended up trading in kind of that interim interim period. I mean, I, I personally think he always wanted to own it. I think he, him claiming that he was going to back out of the deal was basically BS. Um, I think he... I think he was just hoping for a discount, and that's actually what made, in my opinion, what what made the 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 price when it was in the high 30s even more attractive. Is because I I thought the worst case scenario really 
was, um, you know, the board gets scared and, and, and goes for some kind of uh, some some kind of discount. Even if the theory that Elon still wanted to buy Twitter was accurate, a strong legal strategy was still important to maintain leverage. So the Twitter board couldn't just sit back and say, well, eventually he'll close. So it's not that important whether we win. The board and their attorneys played a critical role. We certainly were in communication with the board. Um, I'm certain other shareholders were as well. Uh, I think that the board had a great case, but they think they also felt quite constrained by the strength of that case. It was, you know, I think that they would have, I think their case was strong enough that they knew they were going to be in litigation no matter what. And there was going to be discovery no matter what. And they chose between the two choices of litigating with their merger partner and litigating with their shareholders. And I think they picked the easier of the two cases. The chair of Twitter's board, Brett Taylor, was another unexpected hero. All of his communications, which became public, showed someone who acted professionally at all times and acted in the interests of the company. Taylor is the co-CEO of Salesforce, and he's had a long career in tech, so it couldn't have been comfortable to be the fly in Elon Musk's ointment. You know, I do think that that Brett Taylor and, and the board, I mean, look, they didn't blink, right? They were playing a game of chicken with the richest man in the world, a arguably really powerful human. Um, they didn't, as far as we can see, I mean, certainly not in a way that impacted the outcome. They didn't waver. And that's, uh, you know, hey, to, to their credit, like they, they, they seemed to always be very well informed about the actual likelihood of the success on the merits in, in the court in front of the chancellor. And they just seemed to take that very seriously. Twitter also deserves credit for trying to work with Musk early on in the merger. Even when it seemed like his data requests were a pretext, Twitter management bent over backwards to try to placate him, but he did not reciprocate. And this isn't a point about Elon having bad manners or being a jerk. Courts actually notice these things. The most recent Delaware opinion, which awarded specific performance, included discussion of the buyer's attempt to sabotage the deal. Musk never had that orientation, in my opinion. He never was like aligned with doing things to support. He was doing the opposite of that. And I think that would have been so central to Chancellor McCormick's analysis of how he had sort of handled the entire pendency of the litigation. He was downright antagonistic to the deal. And you're just that that counts against you in the analysis of whether or not you should be held to what you said. It's bad faith acting once you have entered into an agreement, especially one by a sophisticated actor of that size and scope. In September, the world got a gift when the Twitter lawsuit produced some discovery documents, including Elon's personal text messages. It was like a bingeable Netflix show. We could see the texts he got from people with pet peeves about Twitter that they hoped he would fix. I mean, he's the CEO of several companies, probably has very little of his own time. And people who have his cell number are like, hey, Here's something I don't like about Twitter. I'm sure you'll fix it. It was hilarious. We also got to see sycophantic Silicon Valley hangers on, who were there at every step to reassure Musk how great he is. And we saw Elon casually raise a billion or two from Oracle founder Larry Ellison. I mean, the whole DMs between the billionaires things was just like kind of mind blowing to me. Just like the idea that you're raising a billion or two by DMing your buddy. I mean, it's just absolutely like outside the realm of 
of what my brain can conceptualize. Like it, it, it just really showed me how huge of a wealth divide there is in this world and in this country. I mean, it's just in a way that's just like, that's quite mind boggling. The reason we got to see any of these messages is that they were exhibits to a motion that asked the court to sanction Musk for destroying text messages. He was supposed to produce relevant text messages for discovery, and the messages he produced had gaping holes. Elon is also known to use Signal, which can automatically delete messages. So it kind of looked like any business he didn't want the world to see was conducted through Signal, which is a problem if he deletes a message to one of his investors that says, for example, we're just going to use this bot issue to see if we can get a discount. But don't worry, the value of the company isn't affected by this stuff I'm saying in public. I don't actually know if he deleted a message like that because we don't know what was deleted. Once litigation becomes reasonably foreseeable or whatever the standard is under which you're operating, like you have a you have an obligation to retain documents once you get in a position that is so likely to lead to a litigation or once you're on notice of a litigation hold in in whatever fashion that that happens. And so you can't just say, well, oh, everybody uses Signal and Signal as disappearing messages. That's not how it works. And it became pretty clear that that's where Chancellor McCormick was going because she was very interested in knowing what the date for the litigation hold obligation would have been. And she did hold over the decision on sanctions and on an adverse inference. But I think it's a pretty clear takeaway. I mean, it's, it's a, it, it, the takeaway has existed long before this case, but I think it was made a little bit more explicit in a way that really it hasn't been addressed by the courts because the courts sort of always lag in their, in their rulings. They lag by several years in, in new technological kind of things. And I don't think this one's ever been put squarely before the court, but I think it's very obvious now. I don't think any, I don't think anyone could have gotten away with playing dumb about it, but I think if they could have this time, they won't be able to next time that once there is a prospect of a litigation, you better not be using ephemeral messaging. The end of September didn't stop delivering at text messages either. We also found out that Elon was dodging his deposition in the case, and his stated reason was that he was afraid of getting COVID. I mean, there's definitely a point where, even though you're on the other side of this thing, his antics become really entertaining. This is the same guy who, during the first COVID lockdowns and before any vaccines existed, kept his factory in California open against local health regulations. And I don't think he respects COVID any more than he respects the SEC. I don't know. I just never bought the idea that he was particularly that against getting deposed here. But but all the actions like made it seem like he really was. Like this thing about the lawyer that was going to depose him was exposed to COVID, I think like two weeks before the deposition. And he was unwilling to sit for the deposition. And then two days later, he attended the the AI day event that was completely free of what I could see any COVID protocols with a ton of people in a very confined space. Like it was just not very credible that this one lawyer's previous exposure to COVID was the thing that was really like, you know, uh, terrifying him. But these revelations were interesting because maybe this is the way that Elon always wins plays out. He wasn't constrained by the court's rules when it came to signal messages. And he wasn't constrained by any kind of internal consistency when it came to dodging his deposition over COVID fears. So maybe that's what the market was discounting. If following the rules might result in a sure defeat, then what would happen if he just didn't follow the rules? 
So maybe the market was just always pricing in the fact that historically he has gotten out of tough legal positions. Historically, he has absconded from responsibility when he has wanted to do so. Historically, he has kind of been the Houdini, you know, like escaping the the, the bounds of the law. And so maybe that was all just rationally priced in. And, you know, me shouting into the void about what I thought the law would do. People were like, yeah, but, you know, it, Elon Musk. And so, I mean, maybe in that sense, the market was always kind of rational. There was always a chance that he was going to do something completely unprecedented. If you're holding Twitter shares and wondering when the market will see what you're seeing, it can become a little maddening to see regular media malpractice in reporting the case. And to be fair, there are some very good business reporters out there who reported valuable information, but the media is not a monolith. And so there was plenty of bad reporting too. My big takeaway from all of this is that the media as a whole is absolutely terrible at reporting on legal proceedings. And and it makes sense because if you're not a legal expert, and even if you are, you have to be incredibly careful about how you interpret arguments that are being made by advocates. And then you have to you have to understand you have to first of all not be taken in by the argument when you read one side's brief and then you read the other side's brief. You don't you can't do this like flip flopping back and forth or you and and you I don't think you should as a legal commentator just like dive entirely into one side or the other. But this case was so lopsided that it was a little bit awkward at times because the legal case was just very weak for Musk from the from the jump. And so it, it, that's one of the reasons why I think people to some degree thought I I must hate Elon Musk or something like, no, he just happened to have a particularly terrible legal position here. But the media is so inept in a lot of ways at actually looking at legal filings and making sense of them before they become rulings. And then even looking at the rulings and seeing what did they mean? Just like a, a lot of it was sort of very procedural where the media just didn't seem to have the knowledge about how the court system works to report reliably on what was going to happen or what had happened. Or, you know, like when we started getting into this, this late phase where there was like stuff coming out from under seal after the stay had been granted, it got so squirrely. Like people were reporting stuff as though it were news, you know, a week after the fact and interpreting it like it had just happened that day. And it was just so nuts. On the morning of October 4th, I woke up to find that Elon Musk had filed a letter with the SEC, which said that he would close at the original price if the lawsuit in Delaware could be stayed. The stock shot up to more than $50 that morning. The letter did say that the deal was conditional on Musk obtaining debt financing, so the parties didn't immediately bury the hatchet. They appeared to haggle over how to settle the suit for a few days. Then Musk filed a request for a stay with the court, and Chancellor McCormick granted it. She basically gave the parties until the end of the month to close the deal. Once Chancellor McCormick granted the stay, I think that she, again, this is something that I perhaps believe more than most other commentators, but I think that she boxed him in pretty well because he basically filed a thing, you know, with the S I mean, the, the letter that he sent that got filed with the SEC said, as long as the Delaware court, it, it technically said the Delaware chancery court, but the, as long as the Delaware court of chancery uh, issues a stay of all proceedings, I will close this deal on the original terms. And she basically called his bluff and, you know, whether or not that would have had a legal a stopple effect 
I think it actually really could have changed the entire face of what would have been the litigation if it had resumed. But I think that she was like, okay, dude, do what you said you were just going to do again, even though this is technically the second time you're saying it. And the first time you were kind of a pain in the ass about it, you know, go forth and do your thing. From July to October, Chance had been digesting the thousands of documents in the case and providing analysis to people like me in a way we could understand. Also, some of the stuff that became public in the case only ever saw the light of day because Chance pointed it out. And by the time the stay was granted, all of this work meant that she was running on empty. I was genuinely at like the end of sanity by the time that stay was granted. I mean, it was not healthy the way it was going for me to be putting so much energy and emotional work and physical work and mental work. Like it was, it was way too much. And I don't honestly know what would have happened if she hadn't granted the stay because I was getting to the point of like entire overwhelm. When Elon sent his letter offering to close, he was just a few weeks away from trial. So he'd been going through months of legal proceedings and was about to have his day in court to presumably prove that his claims about bots were real and weren't just trash talk. So why did he pick that moment to give up? Why not see it through? So I think that there was complexity leading up to the decision to accept the original price. He was keeping together the debt and equity commitments outside of his own, and he got a significant amount of capital from those. Um, But I think that 5420 was the compromise. I think that that uh, was the settlement, and I think that it could have been a lot worse for him. I think the other outcomes, you know, would have involved prejudgment interest. Uh, He's, of course, paying the legal bills on both sides. And if you're paying uh, Skadnarps and Wachtelitin legal bills, you know, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars um, uh, through the life of going through the litigation. Um, And I think his uh, reputation um, would have been tarnished in it, relevance to other litigation he's in in Delaware. And I think that he would have been in a nearly impossible situation going into deposition, uh, especially where other people involved in this had already been deposed and made very specific assertions. And his agreeing or disagreeing would have both put him in legal jeopardy. Um, So, yeah, so I think that he settled for the original price in a situation where it could have gotten a lot worse and there was no sign it was about to get better. I think also, if you were scoring the court battle like a boxing fight, Twitter had clearly won a few rounds. A few rounds had been draws, and then any wins that Elon had didn't seem to inflict much damage. Here's Chance. I just thought like, yeah, he really, he wants this. Because in in a person like Elon's mind, you would imagine that a three to five year acceleration or however many years of acceleration it was, that's worth a lot of money. Like when you're that rich and that powerful, The only thing that's against you is time acceleration. (laughs) Like the only thing that, that can thwart you is the amount of human time it takes to do things. And so if, if it was authentic, what he was saying that he, that he saw the acquisition of Twitter as being an accelerant to whatever his vision is for X.com. And it seemed sincere when he said it, then I thought, you know, despite all of this, the machinations that were going on in court, it did seem like ultimately he did want to buy Twitter. My only question at that point was how badly does he want to deal and how misunderstood is he about the likelihood of Delaware forcing him to complete this acquisition at the original price and how much is he going to fight between those two spaces? 
I thought the only like hero's way out for Elon in his sort of vision of what it means to be a hero is to to not be an NPC, right? Like to be the the actor, to be the one with the agency, to be the one to say, okay, we're doing this now because I said so. Not because I signed the contract several months ago and the court would make me anyway, but because I said so. Let's do this thing. And it was kind of like this assertion of his will. And, you know, I think he just like decided it was time to switch gears. When the stock hit $52, I sold all of my shares. It just seemed like most of the value in the trade had materialized. And sure, there were a couple of extra dollars to be earned, but maybe the risk reward was no longer in my favor. I think that was the right time to sell. It was logical. It was like a good, it was the best bet, right? But then so many of the people that sold at that point couldn't help themselves. (laughs) Because that stupid story came out, like all these dumb stories came out about the things coming out from under seal that I was talking about earlier. And like, they were playing them up like they were actual news and it was just tanking the stock. And I was losing my mind over these reporters. Uh, and, but it, it, it allowed you all to jump back in (laughs) at 40 high forties. Chance says that lots of her followers jumped back in the trade later in October. I did too, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But first, I should mention that throughout October, there was a persistent narrative that Elon's offer to close was somehow just four-dimensional chess, and he wasn't serious. Maybe he knew he could tank the debt financing, or maybe he could trick the government into stopping the deal. I mean, these various theories showed that Elon Musk is increasingly one of these people that you could make up almost anything about them, and it would be hard to know what to believe. I think that the Musk watchers at this point were kind of almost like abuse victims or somebody who had been burned so much that you're something I'm sensitive to and careful about is my job is to think about upside and downside and probability. Uh, most strong reactions are overreactions. Vivid recent things are hugely overstated. Uh, uh, I joke hey, let's forget all the things we already knew whenever something new happens, because of course you don't want to forget all the things that you already knew. One of the key worries, once Elon said he was willing to close, conditional on the debt funding, was, oh yeah, what happened to the debt funding while he was busy trashing the company? But the banks didn't blink. In fact, everyone involved in the deal, on all sides, acted with professionalism. You know, with the aforementioned exception. Uh, But he might be quirky. Morgan Stanley's not quirky. Uh, Morgan Stanley does banking stuff, and uh, if they say they're going to uh, be committed to debt financing, uh, they're going to do it. Uh, they were committed. Uh, they, they acted completely normally throughout this. On their call discussing their own quarter, they sounded completely normal, uh, talked about how they hedged their risks, the difficulties of the quarter, but um, they did exactly what not only what you'd expect them to do, but in another deal, you'd kind of, uh, I mean, I always check up on these things, but you might be a little lazy or forgiven for saying, well, it's a 99.99% chance they're going to come through with the thing they contractually committed to doing uh, pretty close to 100. Let's just assume they do the thing on the date that they're supposed to. And here they did. So everybody else was, Morgan Stanley was completely normal. The stock price dropped below $50 again in October. So I jumped back in. Maybe the risk reward was in my favor again, or maybe I was just addicted. It had been so much fun to follow, and there had been so many ups and downs that it was hard to let go. I'm glad I stayed in because in the last week, it got even more ridiculous. 
I started this episode by mentioning a news story that said the Biden administration was reviewing the Twitter merger. Well, on the day the story was published, it didn't take a lot of critical thinking to realize it was bullshit. Elon has a security clearance through SpaceX. He was not going to blow up his relationship with the government and blow up the value of a $100 billion company just to try to get out of the Twitter deal. But if that wasn't enough, by Monday, the White House said, yeah, we have no idea what this report is. And then over the course of the week, we got more information about things like when the banks were wiring the money. And then there were reports that Elon was in the Twitter office on Wednesday. So more and more evidence built up that the closing was actually happening. And yet there were very good prices available in the options market. So in the last week, I shifted my entire exposure to options. The last week, it was like really hard for me to keep to my promise not to participate in the play because I was just like, this is disgustingly easy money. Like, this is gross. This is just like, this is terrible that I'm staying out of this. And I don't know, I had already made this sort of conceptual decision. So I just stayed out of it. But it was like, oh, God, what are, why am I so principled? <laughs> for what? To what end? The merger closed that week. And on October 28th, Twitter was delisted from the New York Stock Exchange. Over the next few days, shareholders were paid $54.20 per share. The deal that began nine months earlier, when Elon Musk got locked out of his Twitter account, was finally closed. After closing, we got some reports about price reduction negotiations that had taken place during the lawsuit. I saw one report that said Elon asked for a 30% discount. I think that report confirmed that the risk-reward on this thing was really good. It meant that when you bought the stock in the high 30s, you were really buying at the low end of any retrade range. And talk about uncorrelated, right? Like you made 50% from uh, from May to now, and the market is down whatever 10 or 15% over over that over that time period. So like hugely, hugely uncorrelated, um, massive upside. I mean, 50% in six months, like on IRR basis, that that's, uh, it, it, you know, ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I'll see another bet like that in a long time. And, and it's, and it's a very, it's a very, um, it's a very like, you know, kind of what the, it, it's like, it's, it's easy to say with a, with like a random investment, like, Oh, XYZ stock, Apple stock at eight times earnings was like the best deal ever, blah, blah, blah. But like, with that, I mean, you know, you don't know how, what their next product is going to be. You don't know, like, it, are, are, you know, is something going to happen? Are they, is regulatory pressure is going to step in? Like, is, uh, you know, users going to switch to Android? I mean, there's just so many things you don't know. But with this, you didn't have to even worry about like the business, right? I mean, that's, 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 the, that's the beauty of arbitrage is like, there's a, there's a sort of a set number of things you need to look at. And they're not like, there's not like this, like infinite space of like business risks that normally exists uh, with, with any company. So I, I do think it's the best trade I'll probably ever put. It was by far the largest merger arb position I ever had, uh, might be the biggest one I'll ever have. One of my three biggest positions of any type. I, th- I thought it was uh, terrific. I don't want to say I was certain that we were going to win, but I was certain that based on the information we had, the right decision was to side with Twitter. And this judge was giving every indication that she would make the right decision. I felt very comfortable with that. And then whatever losing scenario was left over was really something new that hadn't come to light yet. Uh, And that's always going to be there. So I could not invest in this, but I could invest in the next thing. And that too would have some chance that uh, something that hadn't come to light yet would happen that would be adverse. 
Part of the job of managers like Chris and Evan is to let people know what they're up to, to make sure potential investors can find them. And so they both talked about the trade while it was still happening. That's great if you're right, but if you're wrong, then you're publicly wrong. Yeah, huge reputational risk. I mean, we're value investors and this was not a value stock. Uh, we own something at the end of the deal that cost more than uh, $50 a share, not, not our cost basis, but the market price. And we thought it was worth about 10. So if the, you know, uh, it would be a pretty hard conversation if the share price had uh, gone from 50 to 10 and somebody said, my God, do you expect it to go back? And I'd say, no, I think 10 is about right as a standalone. Um, that would be bad. Uh, we'd written about it quite a lot, pretty extensively and discussed it pretty openly. I guess there's kind of three categories. There's the being right for the right reasons, maybe good for the reputation, good for the uh, performance, um, which I think we're feeling pretty good about how it ended up. I, I, yeah, there definitely was reputational risk. I mean, I don't think the reputational risk was any probably any different at a t- at a five percent position than a twenty percent position, just because like for most unless you're unless you're our client, like uh, us being wrong is kind of us being wrong, right? Um, for our, for our clients, we have definitely had more, much more financial risk when it was at a a twenty percent position, but you know obviously we also had we had more upside. But um, yeah, I mean it wasn't something I was super worried about, just because I thought the chances were so good, we were willing to take some uh, some reputational risk on that end. But I definitely was. Uh, you know, when some, if something gets written up in Fortune, you, you definitely, and you're like making a specific call. <laughs> uh, it was definitely something I, I, I worried about. Like, would we look like idiots if, uh, if, this, thing, if this thing collapsed? But um, mostly I was just, I was worried for the potential risk to, to my client's uh, money, right? So the last week of the deal offered lower gross returns, but because there was such a mountain of evidence that the deal was set to close, that week might have been the best time in terms of risk adjustment. There's a problem in opportunities that grow and shrink organically that most great opportunities before becoming great were already good. And what are you supposed to do with a good opportunity? Uh, so you're, uh, it's very hard to be underexposed uh, to spectacular opportunities unless you kind of coincidentally came to it then, but in such a famous one, it'd be hard to have not known about it. And of course, the reality is if you had come to the spectacular opportunity, I agree it was spectacular, and you would not put any money into it, and so you could kind of perfect the timing. And this wouldn't have been perfecting the economics, but it absolutely might have been perfecting the expected value. Um, would you really have studied up on it fast enough? So I guess the perfect scenario would be underexposed, aware, ability to study up quickly, and optimized for expected value, you have to be a little gentle with yourself that that's pretty hard to have all those characteristics. For months, the market cap of Twitter was discounted by like $12 billion compared to the final price. And while that was happening, it was very common to hear people bash Twitter and say that Elon Musk was overpaying, which was kind of true. And yet there was an account on Twitter giving away for free the information that you would need to unlock the missing 12 billion. Chance was telling anyone who cared to listen exactly where the market was wrong. So from that standpoint, who can really say what Twitter is worth? It is both a second-rate social network and it also has breathtaking potential. We showed up on Twitter, provided all this value, and then like 
proved the use case of Twitter during the pendency of the litigation where that was the main question that was going to be at issue was like, what is this platform worth anyway? Everything was weird about this case. Everything was was exceptional about this case. Uh, the, the, the platform, the, the locus of the decision being the focus of the case, like just the whole everything was bizarre and, and awesome and fun. And my sort of goal from the get-go was just to like ride that wave, just enjoy it, to meet new people, to make connections with new communities, to like reach an audience that we may never have had the chance otherwise to reach. And I feel like, you know, that to the extent that I didn't sleep very much for three months and kind of just turned all of my attention to doing what we did, that it it was worth it. Like it was it was a really fun ride. It was I, I got to meet so many cool people. I got to interact with, you know, whole communities in ways that I just wouldn't have had the opportunity to. Otherwise I feel good about the value and the quality of the information that we provided. Like I, you know, yesterday Chancellor McCormick gave us a little shout out saying that, uh, you know, like it was, she said it was not always comfortable for her clerks to be like reciting to her what people were saying about her decisions the second that they came out, but that she appreciated, you know, our help in sort of making things digestible to the public. And that's obviously really gratifying to hear that, you know, that it was, that it was useful to the court, that I think it was useful to the public. So in that sense, I think it was a win for us. The guests for this episode were investors who traded the merger and an expert who covered the deal. Yet the title for the episode is Rocket Man. I think that's fitting because first and foremost, Elon Musk took the risk with a lot of his own money and paid 5420 to complete the deal. But also his actions created the puzzle to solve. Without someone so willing to deal in chaos, there is no spread in the stock price. There's no opportunity. And maybe this is a cavalier statement, which I can only say with the benefit of the passage of time and the proceeds from the trade already in my account, but he made it fun. I think he completely, utterly changed how excited he was to pay 54.20, but that was a much smaller issue to him at his impossibly large scale that he can operate on. Uh, that was a much smaller issue than the binary of getting this deal done or not. I think he wanted it throughout. I think he's today probably happy that he's the uh, chief twit of Twitter. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Chance, Chris Demuth, and Evan Tyndall for being generous with their time for this episode. I'll provide links in the show notes so you can follow them online. If you want to email the show, you can write to us, riskofruinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Kelly. 